What if you could know the future? What, what if you could really know the future of what's going to happen? Just think back 12 months ago. How many of us 12 months ago would have predicted that the Ebola virus would be talked about as much in the United States as it was in Africa? This morning in the news, there is the report of an Air Asia plane that disappeared somewhere between Indonesia and Singapore. Going back 12 months ago, how many of us would have predicted that a Malaysian airliner would have completely disappeared somewhere over the Indian Ocean? And how many of us would have predicted that just a few months later, another Malaysian airliner would have been shot down in eastern Ukraine? Two planes full of people who lost their lives. How many of us 12 months ago could have predicted that those events were going to happen? How many of us 12 months ago would have said that this week around town, gas was less than $2.20 a gallon? I mean, really, who of us would have predicted that a year ago? How many of us would have said that 12 months ago that we would still be sitting at the stoplight in our car and either us or someone in our car would be singing songs from the movie Frozen? <laughs> How many of us would have predicted that that would still be going on? And you know who you are. 12 months ago, how many of us in this room would have predicted that I would be preaching at Holland Avenue Baptist Church? I would not have predicted that in any way, shape, or form. At the end of 2013, there were experts in the areas of finance and technology that made all kinds of predictions about what was going to happen this past year. Mark Fuchs, from, a columnist from MarketWatch, had this to say about their predictions. Let's just ask ourselves what it means that over the course of a year, Nearly everyone was wrong about everything all the time. Even when not actively wrong, there was neither a twist nor a turn of fate that was adequately foreseen by any meaningful number of journalists or traders. He wrote that a couple of days ago about how many things that were predicted that never really came true. You see, whether it's heartbreaking tragedies or whether it's sports triumphs, whether it's political upsets, whether it's the ups and downs of world economies, we cannot predict the future. We do not know what's going to happen. But what if we knew one thing that was going to happen? What if we had one event that we actually really knew was going to happen? What if we really knew who the champion of the major sporting event was going to be? What if we knew the outcome of the election before the end of the election? What if we knew the outcome of a war and we, we knew who was going to be victorious? In other words, when we think about all that happens in this year to come, what if we knew who was going to win? 700 years before the most important event in the history of the world, God, through the prophet Isaiah, perfectly foretold and predicted the winner. Well, who was this winner? Well, 
what if I were to tell you that this winter was born in a barn? And what if I were to tell you that this winter grew up not even to have a barn to live in? He had nothing. Doesn't sound like a winter to us, right? At least not how we describe winters. So what kind of winter is this? Well, let's find out together. Look with me in Isaiah 53, beginning with verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. Crush him, put him to grief. Those don't sound like winning terminology, right? It sounds like the kind of things we would say about a, about a loser, not a winner. Crushing, putting him to grief. But make no mistake, the greatest victory in the history of the universe and the story about that victory begins with the words, the Lord was pleased to crush him. So who is him? Who is being crushed? Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, the Son of God. And who was crushing Jesus? God was crushing Jesus. God the Father crushed God the Son. The Father crushed His own Son. Now, many people, especially even some in evangelical Christian circles, would say, uh-uh, no, it's not right, that can't be. Someone has even called it cosmic child abuse. But God the Father is not some strange, sadistic, cruel parent. Now, the word pleased and pleasure here is, is not the kind of word that we would use when we have a good meal, you know? It's not the pleasure we would have with four steaks. It's not the pleasure we might have on vacation, a restful time. It's not the pleasure we might have from an unexpected Christmas gift. Now, the word pleased here is describing the willful action of God. <laughs> well, that helps, Dow. Because I was a little confused on God crushing his son, but now you're saying it was his will to crush his son. What in the world does that mean? And why in the world would it be God's will to crush his son? Well, the Bible gives us two reasons why it was his will. One was for his own glory, and the second reason is for your good. God crushed Jesus so that his place as the most supreme and sovereign reality in the universe would be uniquely displayed. And God crushed Jesus so that your place as one of the people that are most distant and most separated from all that's good and holy and right and happy and joyful and peaceful could be uniquely changed. His glory and your good. What does all that mean practically? Sounds good in religious terminology. What does it mean? Three weeks ago, Tripp Battle walked up to the church office at the church that he pastored, Bayshore Baptist Church in Bradenton, Florida. He was going up to the church office to check on his wife, Joy. She was the secretary. Before he got up to the door of the office, Andy Avalos approached Tripp. Andy had done some small construction jobs around the church from time to time. His wife, Amber, was the nursery and children's director at the church. 
Andy and Amber have been having some trouble, so Tripp and Joy had been ministering to them recently. And with Joy watching from the window of the office, Andy pulled out a gun and fired multiple times at Tripp and took his life right there in front of the church. All this happened just three weeks ago. After all of this took place, it was discovered that Andy had already been to a place where he took the life of his wife, Amber, and also took the life of one of her friends, Denise Potter. Amber Avalos was 33 years old, and she leaves behind six little children. Tripp Battle was 31 years old. He leaves behind his wife, Joy, and two small children. Now, would we expect that at the trial for Andy Avalos to see Joy Battle or Tripp's parents or Amber's parents stand up and say to the judge, you know what, judge, this is no big deal. Hey, everybody has a bad day. Hey, we all make mistakes. You know what, Judge, you should just let Andy go. It's, it's okay. No, I don't think any of us would expect that. We would expect that they would want some measure of justice to be served. The Apostle Paul was writing to the church at Rome, and he gave them these words. The wages of sin is death. So if true justice is served, then the salary and benefits package that we rightly earn for being rebellious and sinful against the one true holy God, what we actually should earn is death, eternal death, eternal separation. Our sins and our trespasses mock the glory of God. If we put it in mild terminology, it would be like us spraying graffiti all over the glory of God, just, just mocking it up. But if we put it in less mild terminology, it would be like us attempting to kill the glory of God all the time. You see, consistently trying to say that, that our name and our way of doing things is more important than God's name or God's way of doing things. That's the idea here behind destroying the glory of God that we attempt with our sin and with our rebellion. But here's the thing. God is holy, and he is just, and he is sovereign, and he is supreme. And so just like the judge in Andy Avalos' case, God is not going to look the other way and say, you know what, none of this is a big deal. It's no problem. No, because justice needs to be served. So, how is justice served? Look back at verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. What pleased God was that justice could be served and his mercy could be shared all at the same time. And how is that possible? I mean, these things are polar opposites. I mean, think of the two people in your family who never seem to get along, you know? At Christmas time, you know, everybody's awkward there in the room because these two people are not getting along. They are opposite of kindness and love and grace. Justice and mercy are completely opposite. How in the world can they meet and work in the same place? Well, they meet and work in the same place through 
the crushing of Jesus Christ. David Linden puts it this way, Christ is the provision and the Father is the cheerful provider. He was glad to have this means of rescuing sinners who would otherwise be under his wrath. Only by crushing Christ could we be saved. We sinned and could not redeem ourselves, but God in Christ paid reparations in the guilt offering. It was God's will to crush Jesus to pay for the penalty of my sin and your sin so that the penalty would be satisfied. And so Jesus gave himself as an offering for our guilt. Not his guilt, but for our guilt. And so what's the reward of this offering? Look at the next part of verse 10. He will see his offspring. Christ sacrificed his life, and his sacrifice satisfied the penalty of our sin. And because of his offering, it leads to us being his offspring. Now let me put that in different terminology. Quite simply, what that means is this. Because Jesus died on the cross for our sin, we have the ability, the opportunity, to be called a child of God. John 3, 1 John 3.1 says it this way, and I'm adding a little extra translation here. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we, through the crushing of Christ, would be called children of God. I love this verse. Look, see, be amazed, be stunned at how amazing and wonderful and awesome the love of God is towards you. Because God loved you so much that he went to great lengths to provide a way for me and for you to be rescued. For the crushing penalty and burden of sin not to be on our shoulders forever and ever. But there are many people who do not see love in this story. They do not see the the death of Jesus Christ as triumph or victory. They don't see him as a winner. They see this story as tragedy. Because here's an innocent man being punished for the guilt of others. How in the world is that good news? They would say, why am I going to follow a God that it was his will to crush his son? What kind of God is that and, and why When I follow him, he crushes and forsakes his own son. But see, the great thing is the story doesn't have a period right here. The story goes on. Look at the next part of verse 10 and on into verse 11. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. See, God did not utterly forsake his son. According to everything that we see in the Bible and the scriptures, through all the prophets of old and through the New Testament, God took the suffering of Jesus and he rewarded Jesus. How? By bringing him back from the dead. God saw the suffering of Christ after he was crushed. It satisfied the penalty of our sin and God said, Arise my son. The resurrection is an astounding reward 
that God gives to his son. You see, Jesus' death on the cross completely satisfied the penalty of our sin. You may have heard me say that about three times now. I'll say it more. The death of Jesus satisfied the penalty of our sin. Nothing else satisfies that penalty. You know, they mocked Jesus. They even put a, a sign over his head. Oh, this is the king of the Jews, huh? But who had the last laugh, so to speak? You see, God didn't leave his son to be made the fool. God didn't leave him abandoned and shamed. Now, the Bible says that God raised him from the dead, that Jesus lives forevermore now at the right hand of God. He's the King of kings, and he is the Lord of lords. God looked at the penalty of sin. He saw that it was satisfied. He raised his son from the dead, and God declared, justice has now been served. Well done, son. Well done done. But there's more to the story. It doesn't stop there. Look at the last part of verse 11. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. See, Jesus received what we actually deserved. Through him, we, guilty, rebellious sinners, can be made right with God. We, we can have this righteousness. Now, don't miss, this is not a small thing. You see, we, we can't stand before God one day and say, hey, you know, I was the pastor at Holland Avenue Baptist Church. We can't say, well, hey, I was a member at Holland Avenue. Well, hey, my grandparents were members at Holland Avenue. Well, God, I gave to charities in the Casey in West Columbia area. God, I put my kids through college. God, I was a, I was a good person. I got good Christmas presents for my family. None of those things will make us right with God. Our standing with God can only change in and through Jesus Christ. There, there is no other way to change our standing with God. The most important moment of your existence, let me repeat that phrase, the most important moment of your existence will be the moment that you stand before the one true holy God. And God the Son is going to say one of two things on your behalf. He will either look at his Father and say, I do not know this person. I don't know them. They have rejected me. And many will hear those words. Or God the Son will turn to God the Father. And he will say, Father, this one is one I died for. I bore their iniquities. I was crushed for their sins. Father, this one is with me. The promised reward of Jesus Christ in being crushed is that he will justify and make many right with God. But there's more. Look at verse 12. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. God was satisfied with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus bore the sins of many. Jesus poured himself out even to death on the cross. He intervened and he substituted himself for sinners. And that intervention, that substitution, it matters. It matters greatly when we consider what it is that Jesus accomplished in his life and the reward that God gave him. Look what Paul said in Philippians 2. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, Jesus was despised. He was rejected. Jesus was crushed. But that's not the period on the end of the sentence of his life. Think about some of the gifts that we gave this week. I joked with one of our neighbors yesterday that, you know, I'm, I'm in that season of life where, you know, we really didn't have presents all over the room. You know, we had like one little section of tons of Teenage Ninja Mutant Turtle things in one little corner. And then everybody else had envelopes. <laughs> that, that makes cleanup really easy at our home all of a sudden on Christmas. You know, we probably gave some great gifts this week. But some of you gave some wonderful gifts. Some of you gave Christmas gifts that made people cry. Great job. But none of us, even remotely, can give the kind of gift that God the Father is giving to his son after being crushed. This is, this is not cosmic child abuse. This is grace and mercy and reward and satisfaction. Because God says that the reward to his son would be that every knee of every person in every moment of history would bow down to Jesus. The promise that God gives his son is that every single person in every moment of history, every character from every history book that you ever remember reading, every person will confess that Jesus is Lord. That is a reward. That is a gift that goes beyond description. Just consider all of this, and I want to connect it to us just for a moment. See, Jesus, according to what we read here, he took our sins. Jesus, according to the scripture, made full payment for our sins. Jesus suffered for our sins. Jesus died for our sins. Not for his guilt, but for our guilt. And why would he do such a thing? Well, he did it so that rebellious folks against God's ways. Let me, let me try to pull us into that. Most of us don't think we're rebels. I love one of, my, one of my best and dearest friends in the world. He came up to me one time after the sermon and he said, I don't ever really feel like I was a rebel against God. He said, I know you say that sometimes. He said, I, I just don't ever remember rebelling against God. And this is all I said to him. I said, have you ever tried to get your way? He said, yeah. That's rebellion. Rebellion is, here is what God wants, 
but we're going to control things, and we're going to fight to get our way, and we're going to do it our way. That's rebellion. It may be rebellion against your spouse. It may be rebellion against your children. It may be rebellion against your boss or, or the church or the government. I don't care. But any time that we're fighting to get our way and it is disconnected from the way of God, we are in rebellion. Now, maybe that's oversimplifying it, but I'm kind of a simple guy. So when I say that Jesus died and sacrificed himself for our sins and our guilt so that we might be rescued from our rebellion. It's a big deal. The burden is lifted. The penalty is lifted. Jesus has made a way for us to know God. And another thing, God didn't sneak up on Jesus one day and go, oh, hey, sorry, there's this thing I need you to do on Calvary. No, it was always part of the plan. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 puts it this way. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. With joy, Jesus willingly submitted to the plan to crush him. He did this with joy. He knew it was the Father's plan, and he did it so that we might be saved, and he did it so that God might be glorified. And he did it so that we would have joy beyond Christmas. Beyond Christmas. My friend Rick Thomas wrote an article, and the title of the article simply said this, after Christmas question, are you really happy? You see, Christmas doesn't always bring joy. It doesn't always bring happiness. But the beauty of salvation in Jesus is this, that when Christmas is over, the joy doesn't stop. It just gets bigger and greater and, and more wonderful as time goes on. And here's the beauty. Salvation in Jesus Christ isn't just a new year. It's a new life. It's not just 12 more months of maybe getting some predictions right. It's 12 more months of absolute satisfaction in the winner, in the victor. You know, this time of year we hear a lot about peace. The old song says what? Let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. Sure, there's some, some peace that you and I can bring through, through the kindness of our lives. But true, lasting peace does not begin with me and it doesn't begin with you. True, lasting peace begins with Christ, has its meaning in Christ, and can be found nowhere else but in Christ. Without the crushing of Jesus Christ, there's no way for us to have peace with God. Without the crushing of Jesus Christ, there's no way for your soul to be healed. Without the crushing of Jesus Christ, there's no way for your sins to be removed. Without the crushing of Jesus Christ, there's no way for things to be right between you and God. There's no way. But because of the crushing of Jesus Christ, everything in your life can be new. Everything. Jesus can make all things new because he was crushed. See, Jesus is not just bringing us to the doorstep of a new year. He's bringing us to the doorstep of eternity. That's why we worship Jesus. That's why we serve 
Jesus because he's the winner. He's the victor. He's the provider. There is no other way. You know, we have this invitation 700 years before Jesus was born, this, this invitation to tell us about his birth. But it wasn't just about his birth, was it? It was about his life. It was about his death. And it was about the fact that he wasn't going to stay dead forever. And that matters. You see, when we hear stories and we hear the truth of the Scriptures that reminds us that Jesus Christ was crushed for us, that should matter in how we speak to our spouses this afternoon. When we hear that Jesus Christ was crushed for our sins, it should matter how we speak to our kids. When we hear that Jesus Christ was crushed for our sins, it should matter how we act in public. It should matter the jokes we tell. It should matter the gossip we share. See, when we realize that Jesus was crushed for our sins, we realize that our life and our peace and our freedom is found in Him, and we have nothing without Him. But with Him, we have everything. See, we need to be careful about chasing after a, a comfortable, carefree life. And we do it, we, we do, but we, but we just need to be careful. Because what we need to do is when we see what Jesus has done for us, we should be finding ways with our talents and with our money, with our resources, with our lives to make much of Jesus. And we should be finding ways with our education and our homes and our families to do things for the gospel. We should be using our lives to make much of Jesus. We should be using our lives to make much of the gospel. What kind of happiness can we find in the crushing of Jesus? What kind of joy can we find in the suffering of Jesus? What kind of peace can we find in this one who bore our iniquities? What kind of hope can we find in the one who took our transgressions, our trespasses, our sins? What kind of hope is there? Charles Spurgeon, I think, gives us at least an attempt at answering that question. The hour approacheth when all the gods of the heathens shall lose their thrones and be cast out to the moles and the bats. I don't even know what that means, but that sounds strong, right? I want you to think about every world religion right now. Every world religion disconnected from Jesus Christ that doesn't acknowledge Jesus Christ. There is coming a day when those religions will be cast out with the moles and the bats. Spurgeon goes on. And then... When from the equator to the poles, all over the world, Christ shall be honored. The Lord paramount of earth, when from land to land, from the river even to the ends of the earth, one king shall reign, one shout shall be raised. Hallelujah, hallelujah. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Then, my brethren, shall it be seen what Christ's death has accomplished for the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It's a new year. Whatever prospering that you are desiring, let me encourage us in this. The only prospering that really matters is that we prosper in knowing and loving and following Jesus. Because... He is the king.
Let's pray.